Cage, 3650, Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Tuesday, November 10th, 2009, AVO2 Difference and Blood Doping. <clears throat> All right, when we finished last time, we were talking about, um, uh, well, the whole, the whole section was cardiac output, and it, the, what I was trying to do was make the point that cardiac output is important. That's what's often referred to as a central factor. Um, with, with cardiovascular um, performance. Cardiac output can kind of be thought of just the capacity of the pump. You know, how much, how much blood can that heart move? Okay? And what I was finishing with was control of blood flow. Because for, particularly for performance in sports, and particularly in performance in sports or exercise that requires, that's mostly aerobic in nature, Having a high cardiac output is important and is good, but you need to be able to send that blood to the right place, okay? And specifically, that right place, well, let me back up, because there are some potential conflicts. There are, there are areas of the body like the brain that need to have uh, good perfusion, good blood flow all the time, okay? Um, there can be conflicts, say, if you're exercising and you have just eaten, Okay, because your body wants to send blood flow to your gastrointestinal tract to digest and absorb food. But if you're exercising, the muscles need that, blood, uh, that oxygen delivery as well. So there can be a conflict. I put the thermoregulation section usually in this part of the class because it comprises yet another conflict because we use our cardiovascular system as a way of trying to get rid of excess heat. And so that can be a conflict as well. All right, so the body has to choose very carefully about where it sends blood flow. And when I finished last time, we were, we were talking about how the body did that. Okay, so during exercise, we obviously want to send blood flow to deliver oxygen to muscles, and specifically the muscles, the ones that are engaged in the exercise. Okay? Therefore, we're going to have to prioritize to send blood flow there and not so much to other places. Okay, now... Uh, we saw the percentages. At rest, gastrointestinal tracts about 25%, roughly. Muscles, 20 25%, so about the same. With exercise, cardiac output goes up, and most of that cardiac output, percentage-wise, goes to the exercising muscle. So we go from about 20% or so up to 80 or 85%. Gastrointestinal tract goes from 20 25% down to about 3 to 5%. Okay? Now, this doesn't mean that you stop or completely shunt blood flow away from these other tissues. Okay, what's 25% of 5 liters? 1.25 liters. Okay? So, at rest, you're putting out about 5 liters a minute of cardiac output. About 25% of that, or 1.25 liters, is going to your gastrointestinal tract. During exercise, this drops to about 5%. Okay? But if you're pumping out 25 liters per minute, what's 5% of 25 liters per minute? 1.25%, or 1.25 liters. Okay? So has total blood flow to the GI tract actually dropped? No. This is the reason you're able to, if you're an endurance athlete, consume carbohydrate beverages. If you're a triathlete, eat okay, while you're exercising. You can still get some blood flow so that you can digest and absorb food. 
Okay, but you don't want to put a whole lot in there because then if you divert blood too much blood flow here, it um, takes from the priority area, which is exercise, and also can result in gastrointestinal uh, upset. Okay, so we still get some blood flow there. And how did how did we manage how did we manage this this priority shifting to muscle and not so much to other areas? What did we do? Blood flow follows the path of least resistance. How did we get increased resistance to these other areas when we exercise? Vasoconstriction that was a result of what? Somebody started to say it's sympathetic nervous system stimulation, right? But then how does how do the arteries to the exercising muscle, instead of vasoconstrict, they vasodilate. Due to what? Due to metabolic signals. Okay? Carbon dioxide going up, oxygen going down, pH going down. Okay? Alright, so local, local signals in the exercising muscle leads to that local vasodilation. Okay. Um, now, some other, just to kind of wrap this up in, a, in, a, in an overall global scheme, um, you've got a cardiovascular control center in your brain, okay, in the hypothalamus. Um, it can send those signals out to blood vessels to tell them to either constrict or relax. So we can control resistance to flow in different tissues by this cardiovascular control center either regulating vasoconstriction or vasodilation. Also venoconstriction or venodilation. There's also nervous system input to the heart, the cardiac accelerator nerve and the vagus nerve which is the parasympathetic nervous system which is inhibitory. Now we do have some uh, other inputs. We talked briefly about these baroreceptors that we find in the carotid arteries and the arch of the aorta that when pressure gets too high that sends a signal back to the cardiovascular control center to slow down the heart rate. If blood pressure is too low, if you've been laying down and you stand up quickly and your blood pressure has fallen, that sends a signal to the cardiovascular control center to speed up the heart rate to get blood flow going again. Okay, So those are pressure receptors. We also have some chemoreceptors and mechanical receptors in and around skeletal muscle. Okay, So those uh, sensing the carbon dioxide, the oxygen, the pH are these chemoreceptors. Okay, so if CO2 is going up and oxygen is going down and pH is going down, that is sensed in the muscle. That signal is sent back to the cardiovascular control center and we send the signal back out to the local arteries and arterioles to vasodilate. Okay? Mechanoreceptors, there's kind of some, some interesting studies, I guess, where they take people and they anesthetize them so that they don't have any you know, conscious input and they passively move their arms and legs and when they do that, your heart rate goes up and your cardiac output goes up a little bit. Okay? Not from exercise, but from passively moving them. These are signals that's telling the body that, that the limbs are moving and therefore the cardiovascular system is going to have to respond. 
Uh, there is some input from the higher brain centers, for example, the motor cortex. Uh, they do studies where they have people sit on a cycle ergometer, and the idea is they're going to start pedaling as soon as possible after a com uh, command, sort of like a, a start in a track and field race. Okay? And essentially what happens is as you're thinking about starting to exercise, there is some signal that goes from the part of the brain that is thinking about exercise that causes the cardiovascular control center to start to increase heart rate. It's this anticipatory rise in heart rate. And also, when we send a signal from the motor cortex down to the muscle to start exercising, some of that signal goes to the cardiovascular control center to tell the cardiovascular system to gear up and get going. Okay? So, multiple inputs to this cardiovascular control center to control heart rate, stroke volume, cardiac output, vasodilation, vasoconstriction. All right. All right, we talked about blood pooling, so let's go to... Let's go to AVO2 difference. All right, so this is the second half of our... Uh, uh, equation here because we've got oxygen consumption and we know that that is a product of cardi cardiac output, Q with the dot over it, and AVO2 difference. All right, first of all, oxygen or uh, oxygen train or gas transport in blood. Uh, with oxygen, a very small percentage of the oxygen that we carry in the body is actually dissolved in the plasma or the watery portion of the blood. Very small percentage. The vast majority of oxygen carried in the body is bound to hemoglobin. Okay? Carbon dioxide, a little bit different. We'll get back to this when we, when we do diffusion. Um, more carbon dioxide can be carried dissolved in plasma. We do carry carbon dioxide bound to hemoglobin. But the majority of it we carry buffered as bicarbonate, which we talked about back in the acid-base balance section. Now, a couple of other ways to talk about how we carry oxygen. One is by the PO2, which is the partial pressure of oxygen, okay, the, the pressure that these gas molecules exert in the fluid, in blood. On the arterial side, PO2, or partial pressure of oxygen, Averages around 100, and that's around 100 tor, or millimeters of mercury. It's a, it's a unit of pressure. Okay. Another way to look at this is by oxygen content. What's very common to do when you're working with fluids is to define a, an amount of fluid and then look at the constituent that you're talking about. The, with blood, that typically is a 100 milliliter unit of blood. Okay, or a deciliter. You'll see that sometimes in uh, uh, blood test reports. Okay, a hundred milliliter unit of blood, typically on the arterial side, has about 20 milliliters of oxygen in it. Okay, so this is oxygen content. The other way to look at this is as saturation percentage. On the hemoglobin, of all of the sites that are available for oxygen to bind to, how many of them actually, or what percentage, have oxygen bound to them? And on the arterial side, this is normally about 98%. Okay, So 
We have about 98% of the available binding sites on hemoglobin have oxygen bound to them. That results in a partial pressure of oxygen of about 100. And for every 100 milliliter units, uh, uh, unit of blood, we've got about 20 milliliters of oxygen in there. Okay? So, this 100 milliliter unit of blood flows into this tissue bed, into this muscle. The muscle is going to take some of this oxygen out and use it for aerobic metabolism. And what we see on the venous side, it might be a little bit hard to see, but the PO2 now has fallen to about 40. And the oxygen content has fallen to about 14. Okay, so 20 milliliters goes in. There's 14 mils of oxygen left coming out the other side. So how many milliliters of oxygen stayed and was used in, by the muscle? Six. So what percentage of the oxygen did we use that went into this muscle? Six milliliters out of six milliliters out of twenty is thirty percent. Okay. So what? Well, let me back up. This, the other way to look at this, or the other term to use for AVO2 difference is, is extraction of the blood flowing through this muscle, how much is being extracted from the blood and used for metabolism. And at rest, that's normally about 30%. Okay, at rest, that's normally about 30%. So are we very efficient, are, are muscles very efficient at utilizing oxygen at rest? No, 70% of the oxygen that's going into that muscle is, is flowing right on through, coming out the other side. So we're not very efficient at rest. But when we exercise, we know that oxygen consumption goes up, so we need to consume more oxygen. And one of the things that we do is we take more oxygen out of the blood that it sees. Okay, so it's not unusual for uh, venous oxygen content to drop to three or four or five mils for that 100 mils. So now we're taking out 15 out of the 20, so extraction has gone up to about 75%. So that's very common with exercise. Your muscles will become more efficient at extracting and utilizing oxygen. What muscle fiber types are better at extraction than other muscle fiber types. Slow twitch. Slow twitch. Why are they more efficient uh, and better at extraction? They have more myoglobin. What else do they have? They have more mitochondria. Their mitochondria are bigger. What else? What about specifically related to the cardiovascular system? More blood supply, specifically capillaries. Okay, greater capillary density, more surface area, that allows us to extract more oxygen from the blood. Okay, so it is not uncommon for extraction to go up to 75% or so with skeletal muscle. Um, in contrast, the myocardium, heart muscle, 
is much more efficient because at rest, the myocardium takes up about 75%. Okay? Heart muscle extracts about 75% of the oxygen that it sees at rest. And when we exercise, the heart works harder. And so guess what happens to oxygen extraction, AVO2 difference for the heart? Goes up more. It goes up to about 90%. Okay. So the heart kind of is very efficient. And if the heart is already extracting about 90% of the oxygen from the blood that it sees, what's the only other way you can increase total oxygen delivery to the heart muscle? If it's already taken out most of the oxygen that it's getting, how do you get more oxygen to the heart? Increase blood flow. You've got to increase more total blood flow, right? So now what happens when uh, somebody's been eating... Uh, bacon cheeseburgers for 40 years and their coronary arteries are, have plaque that has shut down the coronary artery by 70 or 80 percent. What happens to our ability to increase blood flow to the myocardium when it needs to work harder? It can't. And because it's already extracting a high percentage, it's very easy for the heart muscle to um, uh, be ischemic which means a lack of blood flow, or a, and um, uh, not a lack of blood flow, but a blood flow that's not appropriate to the demand that it has, and it can become hypoxic, which is not getting enough oxygen for how much uh, the demand is. Okay, so heart muscle very good at extraction, therefore it really depends on increasing flow. Skeletal muscle. Not great at rest, but has a capacity or an ability to dramatically increase extraction during exercise. Okay? Uh, but with skeletal muscle, with exercise, we do both things. We both increase extraction and we vasodilate and get more total blood flow to the muscle. Okay? So we have an amazing capacity to increase our oxygen delivery and therefore our oxygen consumption, because we can both vasodilate, send much more total blood flow to the muscle, and that muscle can increase extraction up to about 75%. Okay? Because if you think about your... Uh, under what conditions do people see the highest oxygen consumption? Maximum exercise. Right? What's typical resting oxygen consumption? Ballpark figure, average, that average resting oxygen consumption, 3.5 mLs of oxygen per kilogram of body weight per minute. 3.5 mLs per kg per minute. What's the average VO2 max for a young male or female? 35, 40. So you can increase, even somebody who's not very fit can increase their oxygen consumption 10 times over resting. Okay? So we have a big capacity to increase our um, oxygen consumption, and part of that is due to this large AVO2 difference that we can accomplish. More total oxygen blood flow to the muscle and greater extraction of the oxygen from the blood. Okay? So it is, it is a misnomer that venous blood doesn't have any oxygen in it. 
Okay, it's 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 um, it's not de completely deoxygenated. Okay, so venous blood has oxygen in it. In particular, at rest, it has a fair amount of oxygen in it. During exercise, that oxygen content declines because we're taking out so much more, but it still has some oxygen in it. Okay, I'm going to skip this for now. We'll come back to it um, later this week or next week when we do uh, uh, diffusion. Okay, so I've talked about maximal oxygen consumption and maximal cardiac output. A person's This is often referred to as the central performance factor, the, the capacity of the pump to move large volumes of blood. A maximum ability to extract oxygen, this AVO2 difference maximum, which is often referred to as the peripheral performance factor because it's really the ability to vasodilate and for those tissues like muscle to extract and utilize more oxygen. So central and peripheral factors. Okay, When people train, particularly with endurance exercise training, uh, which of these do they, do they, first of all, we know VO2 max goes up when you do endurance training, right? So which of these goes up? Cardiac output, AVO2 difference? Both. Why, do, why does cardiac, maximal cardiac output go up when you, over a year of endurance exercise training? Does your max heart rate get higher? No. Okay, be more emphatic. No. Okay, does your maximal heart rate go up with training? No. no. What, go, what goes up that influences this with training? Stroke volume. Left ventricle gets bigger, fills with more blood, pumps out more blood, stroke volume goes up. Okay? AVO2 difference. What kind of changes do we undergo with endurance exercise training that would result in extraction getting higher? What's that? They're not thicker, but there's a greater capillary density. Okay? Remember, because capillaries are essentially one wall thick. They're, they're very thin-walled to, to uh, facilitate diffusion and movement of nutrients like glucose and amino acids. So they're very thin-walled, but what happens is, is you literally grow new capillaries. Okay? The, the density of capillaries in that tissue, like muscle, increases substantially. That increases surface area, blood flow, uh, uh, diffusion capacity to that muscle. Okay, what else? What else happens? So we, mitochondria adapt. You can essentially create new mitochondria and the ones that you have hypertrophy. Okay, the oxidative enzymes, all the aerobic machinery goes up. Somebody mentioned myoglobin earlier. You increase your myoglobin content. Increase the characteristics of slow twitch. Yeah, it's all those morphological characteristics of slow twitch muscle fibers are enhanced with endurance exercise training. And that helps you increase extraction. Okay, you got somebody who's had a myocardial infarction, which we talked about uh, last week. Some portion of their heart muscle is dead, but... Does it make sense for them to go to a cardiac rehab program and engage in exercise as therapy? Very much so. 
Can they increase their VO2 max? Most of them can. If they have significant scar tissue, can they do much about their maximal cardiac output? Probably not. But will they still see these peripheral adaptations as a result of endurance exercise training? Very much so. Okay, so that's a situation where you've got people who can improve their VO2 max, even though they can't do much to this because of the structural damage that's done. They can still have good physiological adaptation in the peripheral uh, area. Okay? All right, so when we look at this uh, kind of diagrammatically, we've got our VO2 max up here, and we increase VO2 max by increasing maximal cardiac output and maximal AVO2 difference. This is done almost solely by an increase in stroke volume. Okay? We have an ability to increase preload because that left ventricle is bigger, can fill with more blood. Um, over here, we can uh, increase muscle blood flow, increase in capillaries, increase in mitochondria, increase in myoglobin, etc. Okay? So all the stuff we just talked about, just in a little more of a uh, flow chart type of example. Okay. Well, the thing I want to move on to next is, uh, which we haven't done in a while, is look at manipulating a system to try to improve performance. Uh, if we... If this is an important factor, this oxygen delivery to muscle, if it's an important factor for uh, VO2 max, can we try to influence performance by manipulating how much oxygen we can carry? Uh, as we've seen, typically, <clears throat> uh, in a normal situation, for every, in every 100 milliliter unit of blood, we carry about 20 milliliters of oxygen. But what if we could do something to try to increase how much oxygen is carried in that same amount of blood? Can we be more efficient? Can we improve performance if we can just get more oxygen to the muscle? And the answer to that is yes. All right, y'all are probably familiar with this idea or this notion of uh, blood doping. Um, it goes by a variety of other names. And blood doping, blood boosting, packing, uh, the, the two more technical terms would be induced erythrocythemia. Okay, that's, that's in, inducing or causing an increase in red blood cells. Okay, so this we've already seen, all this stuff we've seen. This is what we have at normal, uh, 20 mils of oxygen per 100 mils of blood. And what we can do with this strategy of blood doping is increase that by about 10% uh, and increase the oxygen carrying capacity up to about 22 milliliters per 100 mils of blood. Now, the early studies that did this um, followed this process. You basically took blood out, had the person donate blood. Uh, you stored that blood for a while. The person resumed their training, their body's natural process. If, if you go to you know, Red Cross or wherever and donate blood, how long before they tell, you, uh, they tell you before you can come back and do it again? Is it days? No, it's weeks or a month or two, right? Usually six weeks. Okay. So what's happening in the body during that six-week period of time? 
you're replacing those red blood cells that you lost. Okay, uh, a loss of blood stimulates the body to replace those red blood cells. Okay, so the person goes off and trains, and uh, they return to normocythemia, or the red blood cells come back up to normal levels. Once they do that, as they're getting ready for their heavy training or their competition, what they do is they go in and uh, reinfuse the blood that they've stored, and that gives you an immediate increase in number of red blood cells. Okay. Uh, it will increase your hematocrit, and it will increase your hemoglobin levels. Now, uh, it would make sense that, that the best way to do this, if you're going to follow this, is to do it yourself with your own blood, okay? Um, because you, you uh, miss a lot of uh, the potential adverse effects related to infections like hepatitis or AIDS, um, uh, all kinds of uh, transfusion uh, types of uh, you know, uh, blood type mismatches or transfusion uh, adverse effects. But there have been cases because this will take several months. Okay? This gradual return before you can do this will take several months. So as an example, during, uh, for the 1984 Olympics, which were in Los Angeles, uh, the U.S. cycling team, because this was not a banned strategy at the time, because this was all just sort of getting going in the research literature, was not a banned strategy yet, um, the U.S. cycling team decided to experiment with this. But they only decided about a month before the Olympic Games, so they didn't have time to do this with the athletes that they were going to, uh, the, the more endurance, the road cyclists. Um, so what they did is they went down to the local blood bank and just checked out some blood and uh, infused these, uh, they actually went out of the Olympic Village to a hotel, a motel room and, uh, and uh, put in a catheter and infused somebody else's blood into these athletes. Uh, fortunately, there weren't any uh, uh, adverse effects, but you know, the blood supply in the United States in the 19 early 80s you know, was not a good time. It was when HIV was really starting to get going and, and infecting a lot of people. So that was really a pretty, pretty dangerous uh, uh, practice. All right, so here's what it looks like graphically. Here's, here's a, a hematocrit. Oh, actually, this is hemoglobin. So if you donate blood, your hemoglobin values go down. Over the next, you know, six to eight weeks, your body uh, uh, signals those immature red blood cells in your blood marrow to mature and, and be dumped out into the blood. So you come back up to normal levels. Then when you infuse this blood, your hemoglobin and hematocrit levels go up. And then over time, you know, you start to excrete more red blood cells than you produce. So slowly over time, this will eventually come back down to normocythemia. It usually takes weeks, though. Okay? So this is an ergogenic strategy that has been rampant in use in endurance sports like uh, uh, road racing, marathons, in cycling, professional cycling in particular, because it is very difficult to detect. Um, basically, the only way you can detect it is by taking blood, and there, there are some organizations, which we'll look at in a minute, that do it by hemoglobin or hematocrit levels. They don't even try to test for, in this case, if you use your own blood, there's no drug to test for. It's just your own blood. I guess you could, you know, make everybody roll up their sleeves and look for track marks. Uh, um, but you can do that, you can do that weeks, you can do it a month before the event and still have abnormally high levels. Okay? Question? How come it got back up to normal levels in like four weeks? This is... 
Um, this is probably a little bit out of scale, but that's probably about right. If you donate a unit of blood, which is about five, 450, 500 milliliters, um, over the next three or four weeks, your body will go through this process. So things, uh, um, things that show reduced oxygen levels in the blood, so blood loss is an example, going to altitude uh, and exercise are things that will naturally uh, stimulate these cells in the kidneys to release, release a substance called erythropoietin. Erythropoietin stimulates the immature red blood cells in your bone marrow to start the maturation process. They get dumped out into the blood and it brings your blood levels back up to normal. So it, it'll happen in about three or four weeks if you donate a... Like when you, blood well, yeah, essentially what happens is you're probably, if you go and donate a unit of blood, it's about 450 or so, close to 500 mils of blood. The fluid is replaced very quickly, so the plasma volume loss is replaced fairly quickly. Probably within three or four weeks, you've replaced the red blood cells, but they tell you not to donate again for another couple of weeks after that, so that you're, you're, they're sure you're fully back up to where you are, okay? So it probably does come back in three or four weeks. Okay, so that's a process of erythropoiesis. Um, well, let's look at what happens. There is an immediate increase in oxygen carrying capacity. It delays fatigue, improves heat dissipation or thermoregulation. There's more hemoglobin. And if we look at a, a kind of an, a, an analysis of a number of studies that are very similar, that when you pool them all together and look at it, um, most of these studies show, on average, an 8% increase in VO2 max literally overnight. You reinfuse the red cells, get up the next day, come into the lab and do a max test on the treadmill, and your VO2 max is 8% higher. Okay, let's look at the results of a performance study. This was uh, um, distance runners doing a five-mile time trial, which they did in the lab on a treadmill so they could, they could control the, the um, uh, kind of environmental conditions. Well-designed, it was double-blind, done in random order. Placebo condition, they actually got a needle stuck in them and had saline infused. You know, the... the um, uh, uh, on the other occasion, they had a needle stuck in them and had their own red blood cells infused. We can see their hemoglobin went up, their hematocrit went up, and if we look at their five-mile time, when they got the saline, their time didn't change. When they got the blood infusion, their time dropped 51 seconds over five miles. How much of an advantage is that for a runner? That's huge. That's, that's taking 10 seconds per mile off your running pace, literally overnight. Okay, um, well that's not a terrific process, because particularly in that three or four weeks right after you gave blood, what do you feel like and what's your training going to be like? It's probably not going to be great, okay, because you have a reduced oxygen carrying capacity. So the strategy that a lot of athletes follow today is they use a drug that was legitimately developed to help people uh, that are anemic to help get their blood levels back up to normal, except they use this drug to get their blood levels to 
high levels. And this is recombinant human uh, EPO. Do you have a question? Yeah. What happens, uh, you said it takes 16 weeks to, well, kind of by the basis to it. Mm -hmm. What happens to the tissues and the stuff, af the aftermath of everything? Because I know your body has adaptations to having that, so what will happen when they get back into regular levels and Um. Well, that's the thing, is that a lot of times the athletes will use either EPO or use the blood doping during their training to get to higher levels than they could without it uh, and then compete in that two or three week period before their body starts to regress slightly back down to the lower levels. So um, now that there are some, there's another major adverse effect I'm going to talk about in just a second. But basically, recombinant human EPO is a drug that stimulates the body's uh, uh, erythropoiesis. Um, here was a study that looked at uh, some well-trained endurance athletes and they were randomly assigned to either a group that got the drug or a group that got a placebo and in terms of the pre and post uh, their VO2 max went from 63 to 68 mLs per kg per minute uh, which was almost an 8% increase just like we saw with the other and the performance tasks that they did, their cycling time to exhaustion increased almost 10%. So we see not only the physiological effect, but also the um, performance benefit as well. And here's, uh, this is hematocrit. So normally at rest, hematocrit's in the low 40s, okay? Open circles are the, are the folks who, who got the placebo. And so over this whole period of time of, of 30 days of the training, uh, it didn't really change. And these are the folks who got the EPO. And it got them right up to a hematocrit of about 50. ICU is the International Cycling Union. It's the governing body that covers uh, uh, like competitive cycling around the world. And they've set a limit of 50% uh, for hematocrit that if you're over that, chances are you're manipulating it artificially and so they won't let people compete. Here's hemoglobin down here, which is normally around a little over 15 or so. Open circles, you know, so those folks didn't really change. Closed circles were the people getting the EPO and got them right up to a little bit over 17 uh, uh, grams per deciliter. This FIS limit of 18 and a half is the International Skiing Federation uh, because cross-country skiers is uh, skiing is a very aerobic exercise dependent sport. Um, aerobic ability sport and so they've had to test as well and they've chosen to do it by uh, hemoglobin levels. Um, okay, well all sorts of potential adverse effects, different diseases, uh, hepatitis, A, AIDS, blood type incompatibilities, transfusion reactions. By far though, probably the most common and the most concerning uh, is when Hematocrit gets too high. Okay, blood is very much a balance between fluid and the cellular component to carry the oxygen. And we know if you get anemic, you got too much fluid for how much red cells, you can't carry enough oxygen. But you can't go too far in the other direction either because the blood becomes too viscous. And it starts to form clots and actually when it becomes, uh, the hematocrit gets too high, it results in people uh, or in their red blood cells deforming and they don't carry oxygen as well. And there's a number of um, examples in the 
cycling literature shortly in the years, shortly after recombinant human EPO was developed and marketed, were uh, a large number of young, uh, very highly trained, otherwise very healthy professional cyclists uh, suddenly died of cardiovascular problems and uh, largely because of this viscosity issue. So it's not only a performance issue, it's a very much a, a health issue.